This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Marie Plant, who is a full professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproduction in the Faculty of Medicine at Université Laval in Quebec, Canada. Marie, thank you so much and welcome. Thank you. Marie, um, the topic of this discussion today is going to focus around your uh, your upcoming trial, the Contessa Neocon trial, and uh, certainly, obviously, the uh, issue of fertility preservation in patients with early cervical cancer uh, continues to be obviously exceedingly important in in the management of patients in our in our field. Um, but before we go into the details of the of the trial, I wanted to just kind of get your perspective of where we are today as it pertains to the management of patients with uh, low-risk cervical cancer. Obviously, a lot has been happening uh, in, in this patient population uh, over the last year or so. Uh, and particularly, obviously, we know that for patients with tumors less than 2 centimeters, that we're awaiting the results of the CONSERVE trial, we're awaiting the results of your SHAPE uh, trial, um, and, the, and the GOG trial as well. But I think that obviously the, the the bigger question and the relevance to the Contessa trial is what happens to those patients uh, that are diagnosed with tumors uh, measuring two to four centimeters that are still interested in, in fertility preservation, and and what do we know about the management of, of those patients uh, from the literature so far? Right. Well, as you just said, uh, for patients uh, with smaller size uh, disease measuring under 2 centimeters, uh, there have been a lot of uh, retrospective uh, series published in the last 10 years to suggest that it may be a safe option. But now we're coming up with prospective data with the CONSERVE trial and the SHAPE trial, which hopefully should, should close this year, and the GOG 278 as well. So we have solid data to confirm whether that's the case. Um, however, uh, for patients with larger lesions, um, obviously uh, more treatment is, is necessary. Um, so more specifically, for women that have lesions measuring between 2 to 4 centimeters, which is I mean, the, 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 for, for, for the Contessa trial, um, upfront radical trichotillectomy would actually or could be an option for those patients. Uh, but one needs to make sure to clear the margins safely. With bigger lesions, that might be more difficult technically. And in view of the recent lack trial, as you well know, uh, cautious has to be uh, directed to uh, the MIS approach and needs to be taken into consideration. But um, And then lastly, if one chooses to do upfront radical trichotillectomy, uh, there's often a high rate of uh, requiring adjuvant treatment, either chemo or chemo rads, because of the rate of positive nodes or finding intermediate risk factors on pathology. And then lastly, um, the more radical uh, the procedure is uh, usually the less good the fertility and obstetrical outcome are. So it's for all those reasons that another uh, alternative to upfront radical trichotillectomy was developed, um, and that is to uh, offer neoadjuvant chemotherapy to sort of a shrink the tumor and then proceed with less radical fertility-sparing surgery. So that would be, in fact, the concept of the trial. So yes, again, and now focusing on the on the trial, and, and for those who are not familiar with the acronym of the CONTESA, is uh, cervical cancer treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by fertility uh, sparing surgery. So uh, obviously a very exciting trial. Uh, could you review for us the the design of the CONTESA trial? 
um, specifically talking about your primary objective and then also addressing the, the secondary objectives. And, and uh, lastly, I'd like to hear about the, the sample size that you're looking. So um, the, uh, to be uh, eligible for the Contessa trial, patients have to first undergo a laparoscopic lymph node dissection with or without sentinel node mapping according to practice. Patients who are node positive are excluded from trial. Patients who are node negative then go on to pursue with a pelvic MRI and a clinical exam, of course, to make sure that the lesion measures between two to four centimeters. And an eligible patient then receives three cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy, and we leave the choice to uh, individual practice, but most people will choose cisplatin or taxol or carbotaxol, and we'll talk about that in more detail later on. And then after three cycles of chemotherapy and other pelvic MRI and clinical exam is performed to assess the tumor response. Now, if patients obtain what we call an optimal response, which means that the tumor has diminished or reduced in size to measure under two centimeters, then the patient is eligible to proceed with what we call fertility sparing surgery, and that might be a simple trachelectomy or a large cone. But conversely, if patients have what we call suboptimal tumor response, which means that the lesion after chemotherapy remains larger than two centimeters, so not a good response, then patients go off study and receive either definitive treatment, either a radiation or definitive radiation therapy according to local practice. So in, 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 in a capsule, that's, that's the concept of the trial. So the, the primary objective of Pedro is to evaluate really the feasibility of preserving the fertility in those patients that are node-negative with a lesion measuring 2 to 4 centimeters. And primary endpoint is to assess the rate. How often can we actually accomplish that? Now, we have built in, um, and, and also after the, the, the trachelectomy or the cone, not requiring adjuvant treatment because that, that, that's an important um, element as well. Um, in terms of secondary objectives, we are obviously will be looking at the response rate uh, following neoadjuvant chemo. We'll look at the surgical complications of the fertility sparing surgery. We will evaluate the overall survival up to three years. So every patient will be followed for a minimum of three years following the end of treatment. So globally, we are looking at a sample size of approximately 90 patients. Um, the point is that uh, we anticipate that at least 70% 70 70 of patients will have a good response to chemo. Um, and 10% uh, of patients may require adjuvant treatment. So at the end of the day, we think that we will have approximately 60 evaluable patients. I see. And Marie, uh, when, when you spoke about the, um, the primary objective being the feasibility of preserving uh, fertility, um, what will be considered a success? Uh, in other words, uh, will 50% of patients uh, preserving fertility be considered a success? Uh, more than that, less than that? So we consider a success if, if at the end of this whole treatment plan, the patient has a functional uterus and is capable of um, you know, becoming pregnant and carry a pregnancy. That is that she, she had a fertility sparing surgery, she still has her uterus, she does not require adjuvant treatment, and she's functional. Okay. 
And uh, Marie, you also mentioned uh, the issue of the lymph node status, and I know that that's, uh, that's been a, a topic of discussion as you were introducing this study. Um, you know, certainly you chose to have the documentation of node negativity prior to entry, so that in other words, uh, the, the patient would need to have that evaluation first, then uh, undergo an MRI to assure that the patient had tumor less than uh, less than two uh, centimeters. Then four, less than four centimeters. Less than four centimeters. Okay, um, but I'm here. Uh, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts regarding the issue that th there are those who claim that basically. Uh, if one gives neoadjuvant chemotherapy, uh, even if the lymph nodes had microscopically positive disease, one basically should be able to sterilize those lymph nodes, and therefore we don't need to really do an evaluation of the lymph nodes prior. So I'd I like to hear your thoughts about that. Well, that's a good question, and uh, question, and we, we struggled over, uh, over that issue. But uh, uh, it is indeed true that neoadjuvant chemotherapy can, in bracket, convert uh, node-positive patients to node-negative, and has been shown in some studies comparing both options. And then uh, uh, probably it occurs in patients with low-volume metastasis, as you just mentioned. Um, but conversely, several studies have shown also that the presence of lymph node positivity is, in general, shows a worse outcome and is usually a predictor and a risk factor of a poor survival. So in the context of this clinical trial, we wanted to first demonstrate that the concept that we're proposing is safe in node-negative patients, and if that's the case, then perhaps afterwards and later on, the concept could be expanded to include node-positive patients. But, but right now, we wanted to stay within very safe um, criteria. I see. And, and one of the things that, uh, that I also was interested in hearing about was the issue of, and I know obviously you, you, you've learned uh, from many questions about uh, the SHAPE trial and certainly from the LAC trial as well, the issue of uh, central pathology uh, review. And, and particularly also, it seems that imaging for this study uh, is, is going to be very, very important. So uh, wh what are your, your comments with regards to the issue of central pathology review and, and central imaging review for the Contessa? Well, you're right. This is a very important because the whole decision is, you know, relies on, on those two elements. But uh, so right now we are not requiring uh, central pathology or imaging review, but uh, we will review thoroughly all the patients uh, who would recur just to, you know, to see what, what, uh, what went wrong or what, what happened. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also noticed that uh, there are some uh, fairly strict requirements for contraception during the, the trial. Um, what, can you talk to us about those? Yeah, I know it's a bit cumbersome, um, but in general clinical trials uh, involving chemotherapy um, in women of uh, childbearing ages uh, usually require two different types of contraception to avoid any risk of pregnancy while on treatment, and that's called dual contraception. So technically patients would have to, for instance, take uh, oral contraceptives and a barrier method or an IUD and a barrier method. Um, yeah, it is a bit cumbersome, but it's pretty standard for this type of situation. I see. Um, and uh, Marie, you had previously talked about the type of, of chemotherapy, and as you said, you know, certainly platinum and taxane agents are what most uh, would consider um, ideal uh, as a form of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, my my question was, any thoughts on uh, adding bevacizumab to this regimen 
in order to potentially improve response rates uh, in these tumors? Well, again, it's a very good question. Um, and as you as you probably know, we certainly know uh, Avastin uh, has been primarily investigated uh, in metastatic and advanced uh, cervical cancer, and um, not specifically uh, in the neoadjuvant setting uh, in the first line therapy. So again, uh, for the purpose of this trial, we wanted to stick to the standard care um, chemotherapy agents, and at this point, um, we would be um, demanding a platinum and taxol combination, but Avastin would not uh, be included in the regimen at this point. And, and therefore, if uh, if an investigator chose to add Avastin, that would be a study violation, uh, I would presume. Right. I suspect so, yeah. And then, Marie, I saw that there was also some pretty interesting exploratory objectives, looking at, obviously, quality of life is very important, but also I saw that you're measuring ovarian function and also particularly interested in, uh, you mentioned disease monitoring with HPV circulating DNA. Can you tell us about uh, each of those? Yeah, sure, of course. So uh, we have indeed built in a, um, a strong quality of life component in this study as uh, we believe it's, it's very important to assess um, the impact of chemotherapy on, on fertility sparing surgery in these, in these young patients. So there is a total of five questionnaires, uh, Pedro, that will be used to assess the sexual health, um, the anxiety or depression score, reproductive concerns, uh, fear of cancer recurrence, etc. And um, so those questionnaires will be administered at different time points, like before surgery and at each follow-up visit to sort of um, gather data on these important aspects because it's, it's um, you know, these patients tend to have quite a bit of anxiety uh, around uh, cancer recurrence and, and their fear of, at the end of all this, not, not being pregnant. Um, and um, we have, in the context of this trial, I think a unique opportunity to to study uh, innovative methods to monitor disease beyond the usual imaging. For instance, um, studies have shown that the persistence of circulating HPV DNA in the serum, I mean, um, three months following the end of chemoradiation in locally advanced disease is highly predictive of tumor response and, in fact, correlates better with outcome than the usual three-month step scan. So we think it would be a great opportunity to measure uh, HPV circulating DNA. It's just a through blood test. And we will uh, measure that at different time points throughout the study, for instance, at baseline, after chemo, prior to fertility surgery, and at three months uh, follow-up visits. And so we'll see whether it, it correlates with tumor response and outcomes. So we think we're excited with that. And the group in the Netherlands also has uh, a lot of data that shows that um, hypermethylated DNA that can be obtained from just cervical scrapes, one like when you do the PAP test, is also a promising tool to predict tumor response to chemoradiation in cervix patients. So um, cervical scrapes like, uh, like PAP tests, you know, like a thin prep if you want, will be collected as well at different time points uh, during the study. And uh, we will see whether the presence of hypermethylated DNA indeed can predict uh, or detect cancer recurrence. So we think it's a unique opportunity to build in some um, translational research uh, to this uh, to this study. Absolutely, definitely a very interesting component. And uh, Maria, as a follow-up to that, 
Uh, will this be material or tissue that will need to be sent to the central site, or this is something that... Currently, Pedro, and it will depend, uh, as you know, about, you know, uh, ultimately funding. But uh, for Canadian patients that are entered on trial, uh, this will be a part of the uh, a protocol, and then the blood specimen will be sent to uh, the Princess Margaret um, PMH Consortium Laboratory to do those tests. Um, in the Netherlands, they will do for their own patients, perform the as I see the cervical scrapes for the hypermethylated DNA. And then we will see as we go on, and according to as well the, um, the funding that we uh, uh, manage to obtain, if we can expand to patients accrued outside of those countries and whether it's feasible because they're sending the material, uh, the cost associated with it and all that. But um, ideally, this is what we would be aiming for. And Marie, as of uh, as of today on the, the recording, we're in August of uh, 2019. Has the trial uh, officially opened at, at uh, certain sites? No, it's not officially open because we have just um, finalized some uh, queries uh, from Health Canada, and uh, this has been finalized and sent. So we're, uh, we are awaiting their answer. It shouldn't be very long. And then we've also uh, deposited the, the protocol to the IRB at UHN, and that's also uh, uh, ongoing. So I'm hopeful that uh, by uh, September, like early fall, that we will be uh, up and going and ready to, um, uh, to then open uh, and distribute the protocol in, in the final version so um, that other sites and other cooperative groups uh, could then uh, open the trial in their own centers. And the, the time you anticipate for completion of the study, more or less? Well, we hope that we can, op you know, we can finish this trial in about three years by the time it's open. So it's ambitious, and that's why we will be seeking uh, wide international support, and um, like, for instance, of the GOG and, and, um, and GCIG sites, and if we can also open sites in South America or places where the prevalence of cervical cancer is higher, then it would definitely help to expedite uh, accrual. But we think it's feasible. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree, and uh, I think that certainly this is a this is a trial that is going to accrue uh, quickly if opened at uh, at multiple sites. And also, I, you know, as I think about the primary objective, once you complete accrual, you will have your your results on the primary objective. Correctly. Right. Exactly. So, Marie, uh, before I close, obviously, I, I do want to go back to just getting a, an update since we have you um, in this podcast on the, on the SHAPE trial. Uh, how close are we to completion? So we're excited, Pedro, because uh, we are a little over 650 cases. So I think we're 652 or so uh, and aiming at 700. So we uh, hope to end the trial by the end of this calendar year, uh, if all goes well. And then um, we have to then wait three years to monitor outcome from that very last patient that would be accrued on, on trial to then be ready to, uh, to publish results. So uh, we're getting there. Fantastic. So Maria, any closing uh, um, statements you would, would like to make for our audience? Well, I think the Contessa trial is exciting. We think that this trial will provide a unique opportunity to evaluate that concept of neoadjuvant chemo followed by fertility sparing surgery in the context of a well-standardized treatment schema 
specifically addressing women with lesions two to four centimeters. And really, at the end of the day, um, I hope Andrew, that we can come up with solid and robust data to inform patients and to inform physicians as to what to expect with these sorts of treatments. Because at the end of the day, what patients and physicians want to know, they want to know, well, what are the chances that my tumor will shrink with neoadjuvant chemo? What are the chances that I preserve a functional uterus at the end of the surgery? What are the chances that I require other treatments? And obviously, what are my chances of uh, being fertile and, and carry a successful pregnancy? So we hope to come up with, with solid answers to those questions. And um, and also, I think importantly, uh, we will be able to provide outcome data uh, at three years. And during that follow-up period, um, we'll collect, obviously, fertility and obstetrical outcome uh, in during that follow-up period. So I think that uh, it's exciting and that we, um, as I say, will come up with something more definitive to help patients and, and physicians um, take a decision, uh, you know, for their treatment. And I would like to also just point out that the details of the clinical trial Contessa were published in the June issue of 2019 of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer for anyone who wants to uh, go over uh, the details of the protocol and certainly for anyone who wants to contact uh, Dr. Marie Plant for uh, potentially uh, enrolling patients on the trial. Well, Marie, thank you so much for, for doing this podcast. And, and, you know, as a gynecologic oncologist, I also have to thank you for all the contributions you have made to, to this field and, and really for conducting these really practice-changing uh, trials. Incredibly impressive. Uh, thank you uh, once again. Well, thank you very much, Pedro. <laughs>